Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, I hope you had a happy Valentine's Day and welcome to episode 743 with Keith Ferrazzi. Keith is back because Keith is awesome and he is talking about how to achieve and flourish in the new world of work, the post-COVID rules. He's done a boatload of detailed, expensive research with tons of people to get some insights and he's sharing them with us. So I'm super excited to dig in. Apologies if my voice is painful to hear. It's a little bit painful to speak. I've got a cold, but it should be gone soon. And you won't have to listen for long because I recorded the interview with Keith before I had the cold. So it's just the intro stuff. Anyway, y'all learned one, the four critical shifts teams need to make. Two, two tiny tweaks that vastly improve team morale. And three, time-saving alternatives to time-wasting meetings. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we've referenced, please pay us a visit over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP743. We've got a boatload of goodies over there from full-text searchable transcripts and so much more. So drop on by. Now here's Keith's story. Keith Ferrazzi is a best-selling author, speaker, investor, philanthropist, and executive team coach who helps teams transform enterprises. As founder and chairman of Ferrazzi Greenlight, it's Applied Research Institute, he coaches executive teams in top organizations to achieve extraordinary outcomes. He formerly served as the chief marketing officer of Deloitte and Starwood Hotels, and he's the author of the new book, Competing in the New World of Work, How Radical Adaptability Separates the Best from the Rest. Big thanks to Keith for sharing his wisdom with us, and big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no. No, LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours, and small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Keith, welcome back to How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Pete, this is an extraordinary time because your name reminds me of my father and time together always reminds me of best practices and clear action. You're one of those individuals that I really enjoy these conversations with. Oh, well, thank you, Keith. I enjoy chatting with you and it's fun to be speaking to you live after I've read your books before I had a podcast. So, and you got some more coming and a big research project. What's the scoop here? Yeah. So at the peak of the pandemic, I saw this not only as a horrible disruption of the world, but I saw it as an inflection point and opportunity. And what I want anybody listening to think about is, have you really captured this pandemic and this disruption as an opportunity for your career and for your team and for your organization? We benchmark 2,000 executives and entrepreneurs and ask the question, 
How do we leverage this pandemic to leap forward to work, not go back to work? How do we change the ways we're leading? How do we change our business models? How do we really think about workforce redesign during this incredible disruption time? And we've been chosen as the number one pick of Harvard coming out of the pandemic in terms of books. And this has been a massive research project that I'm excited to share with your your listeners. That's cool. Well, we're excited to hear it. So you interviewed all these folks and you asked them specifically which work innovations from the pandemic had the highest return and, and ought to be kept, held on to. So can you share what are the top one, two, three themes yeah. that folks are relatively unanimous about? I'll give you three themes that you've asked for. The first one that I'll, I'll give you is how much collaboration transformed during the pandemic. So, and I'll give you a number of very distinct practices. Because we were in crisis, org charts and positional authority, they went out the window. Anybody who could lead change was given the opportunity to lead change. If you had an idea, if you had a way of working around crisis situation, you could step into the void and you could fix it. Now, that was extraordinary. We saw people emerge without titled leadership into significant leaders. And I want to make sure that we keep that going. I've never been a particular advocate for managing org charts or thinking about your team as who reports to you. The, you know, when I was a kid at Deloitte, I had a vision that Deloitte could be a great marketing organization. And I started leading toward that end. And I became the chief marketing officer at Deloitte before I was 30. Before they even made me partner, I was the chief marketing officer of the company. So the opportunity for all of us to step into the void and see a vision for improvement or opportunity, that was, was afforded to us. Now, the second piece that we saw was because of hybrid work, we could think of our teams as an unbounded way. We didn't have to think about geolocation. We didn't have to think about anything. We could think of who do we want to collaborate with to really achieve this vision. And that's one of the big tips I want to leave everybody here with. Your team is whoever you need to get your job done. Now, if you imagine that, who do you need to get your job done is your team. Then the next question is, how do I let them know that they're on my team if they don't report to me? And how do I invite them in to really co-create extraordinary new advances? And the answer is just that. You reach out to individuals that you want to collaborate with and you say, here's a vision I have for how things can be better. And then with that, you say to them, but I could never get there myself, humbly speaking, Maybe we could work together and achieve that together. We could co-create a solution. We could take that hill together. The next thing you know, you're now a leader of another individual who working together is going to achieve something that you couldn't have achieved on your own. We saw that happening all over the pandemic. And in the chapter that we have in the, in the book around collaboration, we saw that hybrid work put all of that on steroids. We could really be unbounded in our collaboration and there's a ton of things in there also on best practices on how to start rebooting the way we think about work in a hybrid work environment, which most of us aren't thinking of today. So for instance, we think of the way to collaborate is through meetings. Well, the best organizations were collaborating asynchronously. They were collaborating in Google Docs and other things so that we didn't have all of these droning meetings one after another. So we started using the tools in a more effective way to reboot the way we were collaborating. And that was very powerful as well. So all of that, I would say, comes under the theme that you were asking for, one of the themes, which is how do we really 
fundamentally reimagine the way we collaborate. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Well, and I'd love it if you could share a fun favorite story or two that, that shows that in action. Yeah, sure. I, it's a big company one is the first one that I think of. So Unilever has always done business planning in very traditional ways. They cascaded business planning down from the CFO and the CEO, figure out the budgets, then they work with the executive teams, then they give everybody their budgets and they, they trickle it down. Well, they, you know, what happened was one individual, an HR person in North America. So here's an HR person in North America had an idea, which is why aren't we crowdsourcing innovations and growth opportunities for next year, 2021, that I guarantee we wouldn't have seen at the executive team at the central headquarters in London. So Mike Clementi came up with the idea that we should be crowdsourcing among the top 300 leaders in the world, not the executive team only, where the growth opportunities were. And he ushered that process into being. And they literally ground up the business planning process instead of top down. Another example is a learning executive inside of Federal Express was asked to host these town halls on behalf of their chief operating officer and chairman. Well, typically these town halls were one-way broadcast conversations, but this person said, humbly speaking, why are we, when we've got the technology, we've got breakout rooms, why aren't we asking people questions of what risks they're seeing in the Federal Express platform, what opportunities they're seeing to serve customers differently? So instead of a one-way town hall, They started inventing two-way dialogues, once again, breakout rooms, opening Google Docs, having people give their ideas, and they created a very two-way collaborative engagement with thousands and thousands and thousands of people, right? Mm -hmm. So those are two very small examples of massive companies that fundamentally rebooted real important processes in their business because a single individual saw hybrid and collaboration and crowdsourcing and innovation as something that didn't have to be limited to a small group of people. Mm -hmm. That's cool. That's cool. Another theme in your book I want to dig into is you say there are are six decision dials that can impact the way we work. What are we achieving with this framework and what are the dials? So the book was divided into two sections. The first half of the book focuses on how all of us need to change the way we work and lead. And there are four components to that. One of them is agility. The other one is foresight. And really, how do we look around corners and run an agile operation? And then the one we just talked about, collaboration. And then the next one, which is really a a hot issue today, which is the subject of resilience and mental well-being. And then what we did is we said, once you begin to lead in these four fundamentally different ways, where do you apply this philosophy to? You apply it to reinventing your business model, reinventing the way your workforce works, and to whether or not we as organizations are led by the North Star of Purpose, which became a very important aspect of a lot of businesses. So what you're referring to in terms of these dials is inside of a chapter called Workforce Redesign. One of the things that really happened was we started to realize that the old ways we thought about work needed to be rebooted. So of course, we're all now thinking about, are we physically proximate or are we remote? So that's a dial and going one way or the other. Now, when we really dug into it, we realized it was a spectrum. It wasn't just an and or or. The hybrid spectrum of how we work together actually includes a dimension that isn't even on that dial, which is called asynchronous, right? How do we work 
asynchronously? That how do we work in a way that doesn't even require meetings? How do we work in a way that collaborates in the cloud where I don't give a damn if you're physical or if you're remote, it doesn't really matter. The other thing is whether or not you're domestic or global. Now, on my personal organization, and this, Pete, could be something you'd be interested in, I designed an entire marketing function at Ferrazzi Greenlight. Now, we coach executive teams. I designed an entire marketing function out of the Philippines. Mm -hmm. I used to have marketing executives in my company that were about 85,000 in their base salary. And their job was what I called high-touch marketing, curating relationships with executives that could ultimately buy our services, high-touch marketing, very high-touch. But there was a lot that I wanted to do around search engine optimization. There's a lot that I wanted to do around content marketing, email marketing, et cetera, that I never really put as a primary because I didn't see the return on investment for it from the kind of money I had to spend in the United States on marketing executives. I ended up hiring folks out of the Philippines, an entire marketing team at on average $25,000 a head who are every bit as good as the professionals I was hiring at 85,000. They work on my time zone. They're incredibly English literate and driven and ambitious and thoughtful. And so I really, this outsourcing conversation, right? Many organizations are now totally rethinking the boundaries of where they're hiring. And I'm sure you've read a lot about that in the marketplace, but we can live anywhere and work anywhere. And so why doesn't an, a, an individual like yourself, Pete, even anybody who's a solopreneur, whatever, you can be thinking about building a team that you were never able to think about before, both from a global perspective, gig workers. Now we're dealing with a choice. Do we even want to hire a full-time employee or do we want to hire an individual who's an expert on an hourly basis that can really get, change the game in our strategy. So all of those are workforce dials that we look at in the chapter of re-engineering the workforce. I guess the one tip I would say is if you can start thinking about hiring globally, you can get incredible value for some of the employees that you hire. Anybody listening should consider that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I have had uh, great results myself by pursuing that approach. Okay. So, and we got some extra dials here, huh? Well, look, what I really want to make sure we have time for is to get to some of which really starts in the book. There are many organizations that were fundamentally caught on their heels during the pandemic. On March 13th, I sat on March 11th in a room with an executive team that had major presence in China. And this topic of the pandemic was only a mention at one point during the discussion. And that was just a few days before the shutdown. Mm -hmm. Yet the question that we looked for is what organizations foresaw the pandemic and were able to react to that risk, whereas others did not. And we found an organization called Lockheed Space. Now, Lockheed, interestingly enough, didn't even have operations in China. Yet they had a simple process I highly recommend for all of your listeners whether again, you're a team leader, a company leader, or a solopreneur, they brought together on a monthly basis, a group of individuals that would look at the marketplace from different vantage points. So Pete, you're going to handle the customer you know, vantage point. What's changing the perspective of, from the perspective of the customer? Dave, you're going to look at uh, competition. Jane, you've got technology innovations. Sue, you've got the focus on, on macroeconomic policies and finance. And then once a month, as a part of a natural meeting, they would spend five minutes and everybody on the call 
reported if they had a major risk that they saw from their vantage point or if they saw a major opportunity that should be pursued from their vantage point. Now, sometimes they would go beyond that five-minute meeting and nobody would have anything to say. Fine. Or somebody would say, hey, I, I just read this blog about some virus in China. Maybe it's worth us taking a look at in terms of a disruptive force. At that point, they wouldn't even dive into it to disrupt the meeting. They would say, let's have an assessment meeting to determine whether or not we move into some form of planning or watch and, and, and observe. Well, Lockheed Space saw this in December of 2019. They had their assessment meeting in January and went into planning and went fully virtual in February. Fully virtual in February. Oh, hot dog. Right? Mm-hmm. And how many of us, if we had had that insight and wisdom, we would have shorted so many stocks that we, you know, <laughs> we would have invested in other stocks. As individuals, we've got to leave some space and time mm-hmm. in our lives as individuals, as leaders, to assess risk and opportunity that are from different vantage points that we may not be seeing every day. That was one of the biggest takeaways that I saw which is us realizing, and, as, and, and, and interestingly enough, it moves interestingly into the Agile question. We practiced crisis agility during the pandemic. Now, I was working with Delta Airlines, coaching that executive team moving into the pandemic. And we were going to reinvent the travel industry and we're doing a great job of it. And all of a sudden, they lost 90% of their revenue in a day, mm-hmm. right? Now, they went into daily agile sprints. They assessed the situation from all different vantage points. Where were the risks? Where are the opportunities? They planned for a day. They went and did it. At the end of the day, they did a stand up and said, okay, what did we achieve? Where did we stumble? What are we going to do the next day? Every single day, they went on an agile sprint, willing to assess what was going on from the external marketplace. Now, the power of that is that model of agility is well-practiced in technology companies while they're programming and designing software. It's Mm well-practiced among any organization doing strong project management. But it's not practiced in many executive teams. It's not practiced by most of us leading our work, running our work in small agile sprints. I believe what we saw in the pandemic was this crisis agile that is going to become the new operating system for any organization. We are living in volatility. We've got to lead in Agile where we're constantly assessing and reassessing pivots and movement and readjustments, and we can't just be planning on a quarterly basis anymore. Mm -hmm. That's so powerful that the the five minutes assignment, it was all it took to be like, oh, okay, well, and and then to have it on the radar and then go deep. And so I'm curious for, for folks looking to implement something along those lines. Do you have any favorite ways that you think about breaking up the, the world of stuff to be on the lookout for? The vantage points. Yeah. In the chapter called Foresight, we actually have a list of the vantage points. But the reality is every company is going to be a little different. The ones I gave you make the most sense, which is by functional area. Sales is dealing with competition, marketing's dealing with customer, your IT folks are dealing with technology advancements, your CFO, your, your accountant is dealing with, et cetera. Those are natural. But in any given business, you're going to have your own nuances. And I would say one of the things you should do as you start this process is ask your team 
what vantage points they think we should be looking at on a constant basis. Mm -hmm. Now, I had mentioned this to you, Pete, that we created an entire video series around the book that helps any team move through each chapter. And anybody who buys the book gets that free video series. So if you go to radicallyadapt.com and you purchase the book on wherever you want to purchase it, just let us know that you bought the book and we'll send you the video series. It's all on, it's all on trust. But the power of that is that in the section of foresight, we actually walk you through all the details of how you can set that up for yourself. Oh, very cool. Yeah. All right. Well, so we talked a bit about agility, foresight, and collaboration. How about uh, resilience and well-being? So that was one of the more exciting ones to me personally, for a number of reasons. I have felt for a very long time that teams needed to build a greater relational competency inside of their teams. As you know me, the guy who wrote Never Eat Alone cares a lot about relationships. And as I came along with subsequent books, we have double-clicked on how important those relationships are to functional teams in organizations. And what I saw happen during the pandemic was what I know brings greater relationships among people and brings greater empathy among people is the willingness to be authentic and vulnerable. This got dialed up during the pandemic significantly. I saw grizzled, white shoe type old leaders being vulnerable, crying, in fact, on town halls where they were talking about the fear that they had for their parents' health who were in a nursing home or or a spouse that was you know, diagnosed with COVID early on in the process before we knew what that meant. And, and I saw that vulnerability and that shared sense of, of openness. And I was, I was proud of that. And I knew that that was something that I think we had opened a door that we'd never be able to shut again. Thank goodness. Now, the question then is, what do we do with that vulnerability? How do we resolve it? And how do we help people have greater resilience? Of the teams that I saw be most successful, they were the ones that had a different social contract. They owned each other's energy. They lifted each other up. They asked how people were doing openly. And then when people were hurting, the team rallied around that person. Now, I feel like there was an old myth associated with work of the past, which is your resilience, your mental well-being, that's your responsibility. And it's not even your responsibility. It's your private affair. And we'll leave you to it. Whereas what happened in the pandemic was there was much more transparency around all of this. And some teams did a very simple practice. They called an energy check, which I loved and I advocate, which is in your meetings, just every once in a while ask, what is everyone's energy level? And I'm not just talking about in the afternoon. I mean, going into a meeting, you say, what is your energy level these days? Put on in the chat room from zero to five, what your energy level is. Now, anytime somebody puts a two or below, then you pause and you say, Pete, tell me, uh, you, you put a two, are you okay? Now, Pete might respond, well, my kids <laughs> you know, had a restless night and I was just up all late last night with my kids. Great. You know, I'm sorry to hear that and hope they're okay. But they might say, Jane, why did you put a two? Or why did you put a one? Well, my spouse has just been diagnosed with needing a kidney transplant. Now, I heard that in Teams. And the person who particularly said that had been sitting on that information without t sharing it with the team for, for two weeks, two weeks. 
Yeah. Yeah. Cause you don't really ask, like there's not, it doesn't live anywhere. It's not right. really like, Hey, anyone's family need an organ transplant? Like that's just not going to pop up. It's not a part of the vernacular. Yeah. Not a part of the vernacular, but where it used to happen organically. And this is what we found across the board where it used to happen was in the casual walk down the hallway or the lunchroom conversation or the coffee break conversation. Now that's where these kind of conversations happen. But in the in a remote or hybrid world, they don't happen organically. Mm-hmm. And if you make it a purposeful process, it actually happens. What was most interesting is that we found that we've been coaching teams for twenty years. We had a we had a diagnostic tool that we use in coaching teams, and what we found was that teams that made a, a, a one of the areas is relationships. Teams that didn't pay attention to relationships purposefully eroded their relationship score on this test. So one of the tests is, you know, I am deeply committed and connected to my team. That's a you know, scale of zero to five. Well, those that didn't have purposeful processes around it mm-hmm. went down on the score. Yeah. But interestingly enough, those that decided to have these kind of energy check-ins or they hosted a meeting, one of the things we recommend is a, a personal professional check-in meeting where the whole meeting's intention is, What's going on in your life personally or professionally? So people just share what's going on with them. And those teams that had these purposeful processes, actually their scores rose above what they were when they were in physical meetings together. So hot dog. people claim that remote work eroded things like innovation and relationships. It only eroded work if you didn't do the things you needed to do more purposefully. If you did them, it actually improved the qualities. Yeah. Yeah. That's powerful in terms of like, well, yeah, if you're just kind of going with flow. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> that That's what's going to happen. Yeah, exactly. It's not going to be so rosy. It's lazy. Mm-hmm. And you're going to, you're going to suffer lazy results. Now we spend a lot more time on this when to well-being and resilience question. We had uh, major partners like Headspace and, and Weight Watchers all working with us to create innovations. And we found a number of things. Number one, as I sort of mentioned, just the awareness and the collectivism gained around, we own each other's energy. We're going to serve each other. We're going to take care of each other. That was the highest lift in scores and mental well-being. But there was no question that we needed to make sure that people were aware that they had to take a more proactive responsibility for their own, their own well-being, their own mental and physical well-being. There were people who just sat down in the morning and they didn't leave all day. They didn't get their workouts. They didn't mm-hmm. take a break. They didn't take a moment for themselves. And by the way, because they didn't leave any time for email or anything else, that time got squeezed into their evenings and weekends. They were yeah. just one meeting after another. So what we learned is that there are a set of personal routines that you need to adopt. And the most important thing is if you're a leader, you adopt those personally, like block your workout time block your walk with the kid time. Make sure that small breaks that you're taking, you actually put them on your calendar so you're signaling the organization that they need to have those routines for themselves as well. Very powerful. Mm-hmm. Certainly. Well, so you mentioned a few personal routines and we love that sort of thing here. I- anything that came up again and again as being super powerful and restorative or good uh, bang for the buck in terms of rejuvenation per minute? One that was really funny that nobody did until all of a sudden somebody cracked the code. One of them was end meetings five to 10 minutes early. 
Oh yeah, that does feel great for everybody. No rushing. Right? It does, but the, guess what? Nobody ever does it because uh-huh. the, you're in the flow of the conversation. We don't the, we don't end the meetings five or ten minutes early. Mm-hmm. So what one group? I remember who this was. I think it might have been FedEx. They did something brilliant. They started meetings ten minutes late. Okay. <laughs> so it's easier. Like you still end. Everyone's used to ending on the hour. So, but if you start meetings ten minutes late, then that's where the break is. Yeah. And so I love that simple idea. And once companies started adopting that, that was kind of breakthrough. It's so important to have that ten minutes to walk into the other room and give a hug to your significant other, or go check on the kids, or or whatever it is. Right. So powerful. Yeah. The other thing is blocking out time for you to think do emails and do asynchronous work. So for instance, if you've if you're doing asynchronous collaboration where you're working on a Google Doc with a group of people, block a half of an hour to do that as if it's a meeting and protect it as if it's a meeting. That's my half of an hour time to do that work and you tell the world that that's my time and no, you can't take that time just because it quote looks available, it's not available, that's my time to do my asynchronous work. Because otherwise, as we said earlier, it's just going to get squeezed into your nights and weekends. And But blocking that time is really precious and important. So that was another really important routine. Mm-hmm. Those are the things. What we found was that the stuff around meditation, et cetera, it was all very powerful. But at the end of the day, if we don't change the way we work, none of that stuff can keep up with us. Gotcha. All right. Well, Keith, tell me any any final top uh, do's, don'ts, implications from the stuff? particularly from the vantage point of either a, a frontline manager or an individual contributor? Yeah, I feel that one of the greatest things we can all start to do is start to shift our meeting time out of meetings. We need to make meetings the enemy. And if we, if we imagine saying, okay, how can I not make somebody have a meeting with me on this, but actually free up time? So I'll tell you, like one of my employees who does work for me, actually, you know, she's the individual that helps manage my speaking business, individual contributor. And we used to have a weekly meeting just to get an update. How's the speaking business doing? Right. And she would go over all the things she was doing and I banter back and forth, et cetera. And now what she does is she sends me a five minute recording that I can listen to at my leisure with a quick update. And then if I have any response or feedback, et cetera, I just shoot her another recording back. It is the easiest thing in the world for me. And it has freed up a half of an hour block of time that my, t- my administrative assistant is so grateful that he doesn't have to have as a weekly meeting. So start asking yourself, how can you take meeting time off of the people around you, off of their agenda? Let's say you're going to Uh, throw a meeting with your team and you're going to talk about X, Y, and Z, give you a piece of information. What we found was that during the pandemic, if you have 12 people in a meeting, only four people feel that they're fully heard in that meeting. Mm -hmm. The average is only about four people of 12 feel that they're fully heard in a meeting. If on the other hand, you send, we call it a decision board out to folks and say, listen, we're not going to have a meeting on this topic. I'm going to say we've got a problem. The problem is we're falling behind on inventory right now. And I think the solution is X. And I and some of the struggles or challenges I know we're going to have is this. And send that out to everybody. And ask everybody at your leisure, 
add to the document. Now you want to do a document that's a SharePoint document or a Google doc where everybody can see each other's answers Mm -hmm. and say, you put your point of view in there. So now in a meeting, which you might've called a meeting with six people, all six people are going to get a chance to see each other's point of view. Everybody will be fully heard. Yeah. Then you look at it and then you decide if you even need a meeting, maybe the problem's already been answered. And if you do need a meeting, you'll be able to see there really were only two people that really had an opinion that mattered. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to have the meeting with these two people and let everybody else off the hook. I like that a lot. It's powerful. You know, you can also that some of these people will say, well, listen, I think the better person should be weighing in is so-and-so. So now originally you might've invited six people, but maybe eight people get a chance to weigh in. These other people wouldn't even been invited. So the biggest thing that I can say as a takeaway is start thinking about how you rethink some of the fundamentals of how you work personally. And one of the great evils of wasted time is meetings. So make sure that you work hard to eliminate as many of them as you can. Move to asynchronous as best as you can. Mm, That's good. And for your uh, speaking business manager, you with your quick video recordings, I love Loom myself. Is there a tool you're using and digging? We're really simple here on this. And that's the other thing I found out, Pete, which is it didn't matter what technology people used. We could we could jury-rig anything. It was more about how do you rethink the way work is. Yeah. The fact that she could literally just send me an audio message in Slack. Yeah. So that it's, you know, if I wanted to, they're all housed there. Or if we wanted to get lazy, she could send me a voice text, right, on her mm-hmm. iPhone. But the point was, it's not about the technology. It's about the mindset. All right, perfect. Well, now let's hear about some of your favorite things. Can you give us a favorite quote? A foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds. Ralph Waldo Emerson. Mm. I've always been a thoughtful, curious, agile person. I want more information and I love changing my mind. It means I learned something. That is good. That's good. (laughs) Sorry, I'm just thinking of hobgoblins, Spider-Man and Green Goblin and my kids. (laughs) All right. And a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? I would say that my favorite research is the Gallup organization's research on employee engagement when they really cracked the code and realized how fundamental relationships were. One friend at work was the greatest predictor of an employee's engagement. And we've, it's interesting, so many organizations just dismiss that as a critical element of what they focus on engineering for their employees' happiness. Mm -hmm. And a favorite book? I would say The Great Gatsby, and that has nothing to do with business. It just has to do with the plight of a man who was deeply insecure, trying to aspire into a society that he didn't think welcomed him. And that feels a lot like my life as a young man when I grew up in southwestern Pennsylvania, poor Pittsburgh kid trying to do do better than my family history had been. Mm -hmm. And a favorite tool? I love this new tool called Mural. It's a whiteboarding tool. And I love getting on and whiteboarding things and collaborating, but I love it when it's virtual and I love it when I can pass around between members of meetings, live asynchronously, you know, grow. So I've really, these days, I've really started to love this whiteboarding technology called Mural. Mm -hmm. And a favorite habit? 10 minutes every morning. So snooze to me isn't go back to sleep. Alarm awakes, I push snooze. And I do two things. I, I spend just a bit of time being grateful. And I think about why I'm so grateful. And 
And I happen to be in my in my household, not to get too private, in my household, I need my space when I'm sleeping. Oh, yeah. So my significant other stays on that side of the bed. But that last 10 minutes is my cuddle time. Just time to be warm and intimate and excited about the day. And so gratitude and and connection to me to start the day couldn't be used for anything better. Mm-hmm. And is there a key nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with folks that quote it back to you often? Oh, yeah. It is that we can't get there alone. And therefore, people are so important. And the currency for deeper relationships is generosity. Find the folks that matter to you and be of service. Mm -hmm. And if folks want to connect or learn more, where would you point them? Yeah, radicallyadapt.com is where we're engaging with folks and will be for a while around this particular book, radicallyadapt.com. You will get all the information that you need to get the video series for free, which we're really excited to put in your hands. Obviously, if you want to uh, to get the book there, you can do that as well, radicallyadapt.com. Thanks. And you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? Yeah, it might be broader than we want for this time, but I would say, going back to my core roots, every single one of us have to recognize that your opportunities in this world will come to you not only because of your competency, but because of your relationships. So build a relationship action plan. After today, literally just pick the five people who are most important to your progress and success and be of service to those individuals. And I would say measure the current relationship status you have with them. Zero means you don't know them. They don't know you. A five means you could call them up on the weekend and cry about something that you're disturbed by, right? So it's that end of the extreme. A three is what we normally call a friend at work. It's just an acquaintance. I want you to try to move those five people into being fours and fives, not twos and threes where they usually reside. So build a relationship action plan. All right. Keith, this has been a treat once again. I wish you much luck in the new world of work. Thank you, Pete. And thanks so much for your generosity of this amazing audience. I liked Keith's take on make meetings the enemy and figure out how can we accomplish this goal without a meeting. And then the ending 10 minutes early or starting 10 minutes later to enforce the ending early and to have some regroup thinking, quiet time, rejuvenation, so it's not intense, stressful, back to back to back. I really like these notions a lot. So great thinking there in terms of how can we get this done without meetings and how can we get our connection going instead of having some meetings that are too long with too many people that aren't really doing a great job of achieving the alleged meeting outcomes or connecting. So some good food for thought for rethinking some of those things. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced are over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP743. Hope to catch you next time. Peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. 
hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. 